0: Hello, and welcome again to another conservative historian podcast. This one entitled Heroes, History, and the Woke Left. The date, August of 2020. In the Iliad, the epic poem by Homer, we are introduced to the age of heroes, and foremost among them is the great Achilles, quote, beloved by heaven, unquote who says to his patron goddess Athena, quote, for the gods ever hear the prayers of him that obeys them, unquote. And in his introduction to the Barnes & Noble leather edition of the Iliad, Michael Durda writes of the great Achilles, quote, while sulking, the killing machine diverts himself, playing on a stolen lyre and singing the feats of heroes, unquote. Even the heroic or semi-heroic Achilles, wants to sing of heroes. Heroes and heroism are an indelible part of history. At the beginning of civilizations, many tales involve them, the Sumerian Gilgamesh, the aforementioned Greek Achilles, or the Anglo-Saxon Beowulf. What is also endemic about these tales is the notable flaws of the heroes. Gilgamesh ends indirectly killing his best friend by violating the will of the gods, as compared to Hector, the real hero of the Iliad, Achilles comes across more like a petulant teenager than a heroic protagonist. And in Beowulf, Hrothgar preaches to Beowulf against the sin of pride. Why would Beowulf choose to fight the monster Grendel without weapons? Because probably he is a borderline narcissist. These heroes have one thing in common, though. Their storytellers knew how fast heroes could become arrogant pricks. History's heroes have always continued to depend on the writer and the reader more than the actual figures' lives themselves. To Republic-era Romans, the hero of the age was Alexander of Macedon, who had conquered the Persian Empire, and more, all by the age of 33. For the militaristic Romans, there could be no higher example. Certainly not the Carthaginian Hannibal, who had the temerity to be better than the Romans at their own game, which was war. Later, Julius Caesar became the model Roman. Still, for the Gauls, it was Vercingetorix, martyred for the cause of freedom, or the ability of his native Averni to lord it over the rest of the Gauls, had he actually beaten Caesar at Alesia, which he did not. Ashoka, once rediscovered, took on heroic aspects in India. Han Jin, principal general of Lubang, helped the latter establish the Han dynasty. And then there are more colloquial heroes, such as the Arab Khalid ibn al-Walid, or the Sword of God, and the Spanish al Cid, the former for pushing Islam across borders, the latter for pushing Islam back. Actual evil in history has always been at hand, but harder to find when one looks below the surface. When asked to name such scurrilous figures, many of the same appear. Attila, Genghis Khan, and Ivan the Terrible, to name but a few. But whereas Attila gets all of the press, Theodoric the Ostrogoth, a more successful conqueror of the era, gets little note though he also cut a swath of destruction through the dying Western Roman Empire. Genghis was a brutal conqueror who put whole cities to the sword, but so did his successor Tamerlane. There is a new Delhi because of what Tamerlane did to the old one, but Genghis's scale of conquest lasted generations after his death, whereas Tamerlane's died out immediately. Ivan was an effective czar, well, until his descent into madness and the murder of his son. But of course, forgiving Ivan of his uh, prolicide reminds of the quote of John Kenneth Galbraith. Upon being told that Herbert Hoover would have been a great president, not for the Depression, Galbraith responded, quote, Yes, but Switzerland would be a flat country if not for the Alps. Unquote. And then there is Hitler. So many 21st century writers like to apply charges of fascism to their opponents because the vileness of Hitler's accomplishments is so undisputed. Yet his contemporaries Stalin and Mao also directly orchestrated the mass murder of tens of millions of their people. However, no one evokes Mao as the archetype of evil with the same repetition as Hitler. Part of this was Mao's focus on keeping his bloodthirsty nature safely confined within China's borders. Had he tried to export his great leap forward, history might be more accurate to his nature than they are today. Stalin is even more difficult. There he is, sitting on Roosevelt's right at Tehran and sitting next to the left of the ghost of FDR at Yalta. Despite his predations, including the purges, the mass murder of Ukrainians and Cossacks and Eastern Europe's conquest, a war-weary West was not about to confront either military or historically the man whose country had done the most to defeat Nazi Germany. Even Stalin, this evilest of villains, had a lair. And try to imagine what World War II would have looked like if the daily count of 3 million Wehrmacht soldiers were in France rather than in Russia when the Allies came ashore at Normandy that Stalin kept Russia in the war as part of his legacy, along with all of his vile acts. And whereas Hitler is a glaring example of depravity, his German predecessor, the Kaiser, is not so easily pegged. For one, where Hitler had absolute power, the Kaiser was, in many ways, a figurehead. Though Allied propagandists morphed the Kaiser into some sort of evil figure, World War I reality is far more nuanced than that. France was spoiling for a fight with Germany after the ignominy of the Franco-Prussian war debacle. England wanted Germany to take down a peg or two for the hubris of challenging England's hegemony on the seas. And Russia entered the war not to directly fight Germany, but rather defend its perceived paramount position in the Balkans and continue to pursue its dream of taking Constantinople. Turks be damned and the Austro-Hungarians were a once-great power blown around by the winds of change. In other words, World War I was not about heroism or villainy, but rather, really, about naked national self-interests. In World War II, the Japanese military government of the mid-20th century also perpetuated war crimes, mainly against the Chinese. But without that central villain, Tojo was the leader during World War II, well, at least part of it, but not the progenitor of Japanese racism and imperialism. And he only became prime minister in 1941, well after Japan had begun the conquest of China. In the late 1500s, the Japanese, under the banner of racial superiority, had attempted to conquer Korea with an eye towards China afterward. It was one of those historical anomalies that, at that particular moment in history, Korea would produce arguably the greatest admiral of all time to send the Japanese packing. So Japanese designs on China were not the result of a single villain, but rather a historical belief in their superiority and a historical belief in their right to rule Asia. Throughout the history in the medium of movies, which has had a lasting effect on the 21st century mindset, Those featuring heroes are always number one in box office. Whether looking at total box office numbers or inflation adjusted, heroes reign. The Avengers, the people of Naboo and Avatar, or the 1950s Moses in the Ten Commandments. With a few exceptions, the heroes are the archetypes for how a person should conduct themselves. And even in those without, let's say, a clear hero, such as Titanic or Gone with the Wind, there are heroic figures, such as Jack, who gives his life to save Rose, or Scarlet O'Hara, who finds her inner strength. What is interesting is, is that even in the movies, the concept of evil is more nuanced. In Batman's tactics in The Dark Knight, making him all too similar to the Joker, is the Paramount Avengers foe, Thanos, pure evil, or rather a galactic eco-warrior with a Malthusian outlook. And many of the great things in the epic Star Wars, well, at least the first three movies, was that the line separating the, quote, good Jedis, quote, from the bad, was not ocean-wide. Darth Vader, an archetypal villain who is strangling people left and right in the first movie, saves his son's life by the third giving up his own. Roger Ebert used to say that the villains made James Bond movies. This supposition is only partially correct. Thunderball was good, but the villain Largo, eh, so-so. And I love the villain Drax, but the movie Moonraker, ugh. Whenever real-life movies are made, it is no longer hard to discern who the villains will be, well, at least in 2020. In 1992's True Lies, it was a Pakistani, no more. And China? ha. <laughs> As noted in the Washington Examiner, quote, In 2012, for example, a leaked script of Red Dawn prompted outrage from Chinese state media as the film was set to depict an invasion of the U.S. by China. In response, MGM scrubbed all references to China, substituting North Korea as the villain bent on taking over the U.S., unquote. When Disney gets nearly 15% of its box office from China, The heroes are Chinese, such as Mulan, and the villains are sort of vague Asian steppe tribes. But where nuance and ambiguity exist in most, not all, of history, in 2020, the woke left see themselves clearly as the heroes of today, freeing African Americans from their oppression or liberating women from male-dominated bondage. One of the reasons that woke leftists continually evoke the hateful legacy of slavery is it is just that, heinous and evil and without nuance. I have noted that there are examples of vileness and evil in history without question. The Holocaust is one and slavery is another. But what of the roles in 21st century black inequality? It is easy to condemn a single police officer such as Derek Chauvin, but what of the liberal mayors and governors and their personally appointed police chiefs? What role of the liberal-dominated big education complex that has ruled over education for 50 years has continued to deliver unequal outcomes for students? What is the role of that? What of black leaders such as Barack Obama who rail against inequalities and yet purchase $15 million homes in mostly white enclaves such as Martha's Vineyard? What is the role of a culture that almost denigrates two-person households, something that even Obama celebrated? These are debatable, nuanced discussions, not the stuff of good versus evil, not necessarily the thing... Of heroes and villains. What is so concerning about the woke left is not their motivation. As a conservative, I share some of them, albeit with the notable difference of creating equal opportunity versus equal outcomes. But as a conservative, equality is still the goal. What is concerning with the woke left is their certitude. And in that certainty lies the justification for a burn-it-all-down mentality. How many heinous acts have been committed throughout history in the name of certitude? The perpetrators of the Roman prescriptions, the Spanish Inquisition, the Russian pogroms, and the Holocaust were all quite certain that what they were doing was absolutely correct. None of these was completed in the heat of the moment, or a, pe- or a people gripped by passion. Instead, they were thought out, planned, and formally executed. To question something, such as whether African American travails are the stuff of police discrimination, is the soul of reason. Blind faith is the stuff of certitude. The nuanced and sometimes scurrilous history of the United States, Burn it down and replace it with something else. The Declaration and the Constitution? Written by slaveholders, so trash them both and replace them with something else. Lincoln? Even the Great Emancipator is now seen as flawed and needs to be put on the trash heap. The earlier evocation of the Dark Knight movie was intentional. The real difference between the characters is the one wishes to reform but save what is already good, but the other wishes to burn it all down. But what of the conservative ethos preached in this podcast and on the pages of this website? The desire for smaller government is so that the certain cannot have grand power to achieve their aims, beneficial though they perceive them to be. The desire for liberty is to contain and challenge the certitude of others. And the wonder of capitalism is that it channels the natural inclination of individual choice and mutual benefit to a successful end. And what of other certitudes held by this conservative, myself? I am certain that free trade is better, but better with the current Chinese regime? I am certain about federalism and the power of state and local government. But does not COVID provide an example, or war itself, where a national response from a centralized entity may be better? I am certain that immigration is a good thing. We need the workers and their labor. But is this current wave becoming part of a melting pot or a country within a country? And what about access to the entitlement state that previous immigration groups did not have? And I am certain that a woman should have control over her own body and therefore support free choice. But is that not a life? A conservative's goal is not to conserve a given place in time or a regimented belief system never open to change. Slavery was with us for 4,900 years. Now it is considered despicable. That is good. Instead, as a conservative, I wish to preserve the basis of individual liberty so that these issues can be worked out. I am not certain about how other people should live, but I am confident we should be free to work that out for ourselves and as a society with as much equality of opportunity as possible. The heroes of history are flawed creatures, and so are we. But what was the best thing about our heroes? Washington did hold slaves, but was also instrumental in the creation of the most prosperous republic of all time. Jefferson owned slaves, but wrote the most exceptional single document capturing the concept of freedom in history. At one point, Lincoln conceived of a country in Africa where the slaves could return, but later did more than any other human being to free over three million uh, fellow human beings. Martin Luther King Jr. had views on gay's that would not be acceptable today in 2020, but more than any 20th century figure articulated a vision that ultimately led to an African American becoming the most powerful man in the world in 2008. They were all flawed, but they were all heroes. But for these heroes on the left, there is no such doubt, no flaws. And for these heroes, there needs to be a villain. What would Al Sharpton, Ta-Nehisi Coates, and Robin D'Angelo do if we were in a post-gender, post-racial society? Because none are general activists, but instead committed to a single cause with a single explanation, that of white racism, there can be no discussion, no debate, and no reasoning At some point, the Spanish Inquisition ceased to be about religion and became more about conformity and power. But the priests could never admit that because that would be to lose their hold on morality and power. So many leaders of leftist movements in the United States simply can never get to a post-racial society. There are too many votes to be had, too much money to make, and too much heroic acclaim to collect. Without a villain, there is no hero. And with the particular villain of white-perpetuated, systematic racism, they would be just ordinary people, not heroes. And within this divisiveness, the divisiveness that the woke left is creating lies the current real villainy. Thank you.